Welcome to the Addiction Solution Podcast brought to you by Baldwin Research Institute and the Freedom Model. Addiction experts Mark Sheeran, Stephen Slate, and me, Michelle Dunbar, take on some of the most controversial topics surrounding substance use, addiction, and treatment. If there are topics you'd like to hear us discuss, books you'd like us to review, or specific questions you'd like answered, you can email us at podcast at thefreedommodel.org. That's podcast at thefreedommodel.org. Hi, this is Stephen Slate. I'm here with my Freedom Model co-authors, Mark Sheeran and Michelle Dunbar. And today we're going to discuss whether an alcoholic or an addict can ever become a normal drinker today. So um, this uh, is probably one of the most controversial issues in the world of drug and alcohol use problems. Um, I, we don't even sort of believe in the terms addict or alcoholic here at uh, Baldwin Research and the Freedom Model because we've seen the research over the years that shows that the number one claim about people with drug and alcohol problems <coughs> is untrue. <clears throat> and that claim is that once they have a single puff of a joint or a single drink, they lose control of themselves and continue to drink or use drugs to the extreme after they had that first hit um, or first drink. We cover this information in Appendix A of the Freedom Model for Addictions. And basically, uh, there's been a whole bunch of laboratory studies where they give people alcohol, sometimes without their knowledge, sometimes with their knowledge, but changing their expectations. There's all sorts of setups. Um, and they can't find this loss of control thing in the laboratory. Uh, they've set up experiments with the worst of the worst uh, alcoholics, guys that were on the street begging for money for alcohol ending up arrested for public drunkenness all the time. They took these guys in the late 1960s, early 70s. They had them live in a hospital for a while. They did all sorts of experiments with them, and uh, one of the experiments was if they drank four and a half ounces or less of alcohol in a day, they get chips that they could save up to use on another day. But they were allowed to drink up to 12 ounces on that day. What they would do is they would keep their drinking at less than four and a half ounces until they saved up enough chips to have a binge day where they would drink 24 ounces in one day, right? So we could go through all these experiments. There's a whole ton of them. There's been similar experiments with cocaine and methamphetamines and crack. And this loss of control thing just never shows up in the laboratory. So what kind of biological condition is it that shows up in real life but not in the laboratory? Right. <laughs> it's right. a little odd. Right. Um, so maybe it's a little more complicated than that. Anyways, um, we, because this loss of control thing doesn't exist and this disease of addiction doesn't exist, we know that a 
anybody can become a regular, normal drinker if they want, no matter what problems they've had in the past. Mark and Michelle are good examples of people who had very bad drinking problems and are now normal drinkers. Uh, yes. What's your experience with that, Mark? Well, I, I think that um, a little background helps. Uh, some of you that have listened to the podcast know know my story that I came out of an AA household and um, treatment was a big part of my uh, life and existence and experience as a kid. And so I believed that uh, I would be an alcoholic and then I would have to stop and I'd have to go to AA, which I did. I did all that. I followed the script and I went down that path. And then I, and then I became a researcher. I mean, I'm, I'm covering a lot of ground here in my life, but, but then I became a researcher after I sobered up and on, on drug and alcohol use. And I spent the next, well, the past 30 years studying the problem. Well, somewhere in the middle of that, I realized I wanted a, I wanted a drink. And, uh, but it was different because I, I wanted to drink like, you know, a 40 year old guy, not, not an 18 year old out of hand, you know, off the hook sort of nutbag like I was. And, and consequently, because that was my motive, I did. I drank, and I still do drink like a normal guy. I have a few beers now and again, um, with no, no problem. I, I think I, I want to back up though. Um, and and but but let me say a couple things. One thing is that's not an unusual experience. What I just described is not unusual. The only unusual part is my my youth, where I was stuck in AA as a as a boy. Um, but a lot of people the vast majority of heavy drinkers will eventually come to the same conclusion that I just did in my 40s or late 30s, and that is I, I'd like to drink like a normal guy or I don't want to drink at all, right? So, but it, but you bring up something, so I'm going to back up for a second because uh, I was looking on Facebook at one of these closed groups that deals with deprogramming from AA, and somebody said, and this comes up a lot, you know, what is an alcoholic? And, uh, and boy, those posts get a ton of activity because everybody has, well, if you drink six beers a day, do you, you know yeah. what I mean? And then somebody says, well, no, it's only if you drink six beers and you have problems. And then somebody will cut in, well, what is a problem? And, and all of a sudden you have a thousand different posts on every different conceivable way of drinking and everybody's opinion. And what it proves is that the alcoholic, that term is completely and totally subjective. There is no no set thing called an alcoholic and it's all what we think it is and so because of that you really have no no way to study it that way you know you can't say that this person's an alcoholic and that person isn't an alcoholic and you know do they lose control do they not lose control the only way really to study that is to study it like we did in the freedom model and that's look up the studies that prove that all drinking is initiated by the person's desire and pursuit of happiness. It's their choice. There is no loss of control, uh, you know, and the consequences and costs and trade-offs, you know, the price you pay for drinking is varied. 
you know? So, so to try to decide the term alcoholic based on the costs is impossible because they're so varied and individual. And, uh, and so are the motives to drink. And there's no loss of control. So all these definitions are meaningless. What it comes down to is, does the person believe they have no control? And that's the one thing that's important. If they believe they have no control, then they're going to believe they're an alcoholic and or a drug addict. If they feel they have no control over their own consumption, if they bought into that mythology. But everything else is just subjective nonsense. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about that to, to say there is no set description of an alcoholic except for the idea that you think you are one. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point, Mark. You know, the very easy example is, you know, there's a good number of people in Italy have a have a drink of wine with lunch and dinner every day. Right. And yep. if somebody did that here in many circles, they might be considered an alcoholic. Um, right. There's some people there that have even a glass of wine with breakfast. Uh, I guess they tend to be older from what I've read. Mm-hmm. And in the therapeutic communities in Italy, I heard from a woman who worked in one, they served a glass of wine with lunch at the therapeutic communities where people were there for drug problems. <laughs> yeah. They served them wine with lunch in the rehab. So, um, it, it really is, when you look at things like that, it is totally subjective who is one, who isn't, right? And it's really, it, it becomes more of um, moral judgment, something about yes. norms and how much you should or shouldn't drink or um, how you should or should not behave. It, it varies by religion. It varies so many different ways, right? Um, but I think alcoholic or addict in some more reasonable people's minds Right, uh, especially, um, you know, you're looking at somebody you love, um, and it's just kind of like I know it when I see it, which is, damn, they're causing a lot of problems with right. drinking or drug use right now, right? And the question is, does that need to, do we need to lock on to a person at that point in life, like let's say uh, the girl who is, you know, just getting too high in college and her grades are slipping, do we need to define the rest of her life, label her, give her a diagnosis, you know, substance use disorder or alcoholism or whatever, you know, people want to say and and say that she can never drink like a normal person, right? That's that's, right. that's kind of the big issue here because it as as you said, you know, most most former formerly uh, you know, people who fit the definition for alcoholic, they do end up becoming moderate drinkers at some point. That's a fact revealed in the, in the research. Um, so do we want to smack that label on people? You, you kind of got that label in college, Michelle, right? Well, I actually kind of got that label as a child. Um, you know, I, I too, like Mark, grew up in a household that was AA-oriented. My dad uh, went to AA in the mid-70s. I was about nine or ten years old. And and both his parents had alcohol problems and were in and out of rehab. 
And so I was told from a young age, you're going to, you know, if you ever touch a drop of alcohol, you're going to be an alcoholic. You're going to drink uncontrollably. So at 10 years old, I got the alcoholic label and, you know, go figure. I got to the sort of idea that you have the gene that I have the gene that it's in me. And, uh, and so I, by the time I started drinking in high school, now the truth is I drank a couple times in high school and got, got pretty drunk. Um, but it, it was always in the back of my mind that I'd be out of control. And so pretty much from go, I was, you know, I, I, and I loved it. I had a lot of fun. It was almost like, you know, I was living it up before I was going to die or something, you know, that I knew at some point I'd have to stop and, you know, go to AA and like, i like, that was set up before I took my first drink. Yeah. And yeah, so, so for me, you know, when I look at when, when parents call me or something and they, you know, and they're, they take, they'll start with, you know, oh, alcoholism is in our family. My son has started drinking or I caught him smoking pot. I need to send him to rehab. You know, I, I, I. I'm like, don't, whatever you do, don't, and stop talking about his grandfather who had a problem with alcohol. Stop acting as if that this is a life sentence before he even has a chance to get out of high school. Um, you know, because the truth of the matter is most of these parents that call me with that, they partied. A lot of them did. A lot of them got, have been drunk more than once in their life. And, you know, but, but there's so much um, fear mongering and misinformation out there that 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 people have literally I, I hate to say it but but shut off their logical part of their thinking um to accept this stuff that when you really look at it is utter nonsense um that that you know somebody can be an alcoholic before they ever take a drink um or that that people do lose control when even when people look at their own drinking or they look at their loved ones substance use They've seen probably binges and stops. They've seen people moderate on occasion because literally almost nobody drinks themselves to death. You know, it's you bring up something that's interesting. We, you know, we get a lot of calls from parents and it's happened more in the last, I would say, 10 years of the 30 years that we've been doing this. Um, where a mother will say to us or a father will say, you know, my son has a problem. And then we go through the problem, whatever it might be. And I just let them talk. And then they say, does your program tell them that they can never drink again? And now I would say probably 25 to 30 years ago when we first started, that was an incredibly rare question. Today, it's probably 25 to 30% of the calls where they're asking. And then they'll say, you know, he's gonna be going to a wedding in three weeks right, right. and we you know are you telling him that he can never drink alcohol again and when these calls started creeping in I, I saw a shift and the shift was that the rehab industry had kind of run its course people know treatments a scam they just don't know what else there is out there they know that they don't agree they don't agree that once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. They want their kids to have a normal life because the parent drank in college 
and then got their act together at some point after college, which is typical, right? 50% yeah. of, the heavy, yeah. of the heavy drinkers by age 30 aren't heavy drinkers anymore or drug takers. You know, they, they, they calm down, they change their preference, other things in life become more important. So, so somehow these parents have figured out, geez, this rehab thing, I just talked to five rehabs before I called you guys, and they're scaring the daylights out of me that my kid is doomed. And so they're asking me permission to think rationally because they're thinking rationally. The rational response to a kid having a problem is, oh, geez, I think he can get over it. Right. right? Because I did. Right. When I was 25. You know, and that's rational. That's rational. What's irrational yeah. is giving a kid a diagnosis at 18 years old, like they did to me. Yes. And saying, you're absolutely broken, diseased, and disordered. I, I mean, that's. To, to make that leap. Now, mind you, they make that sort of an analysis in a 10-minute, you know, entrance exam to a rehab, you know? Yeah. They don't even know me, and they're giving me what essentially is cancer. Yeah. Right? And you're like, holy cow. I mean, if that's not terrifying to a parent, but here's the deal. Like I said, the parent isn't buying. Today, we're seeing more and more people critically thinking and saying, geez, that freedom model sounds a hell of a lot more sane than X, Y, and Z rehab. I don't want to be scared. You know, I want my kid to get over it. Here's something, here's something that I think is behind that. I think parents know it's a non-starter to jump in and say, okay, you can never touch anything again. I think right. that's also there. Because that's great when point. you do that, that's a great you get, point. You get what happened, sort of, with Michelle, which is, yeah. hey, you're this alcoholic, and what I heard you say, Michelle, when you're telling it back, is I was trying to get in as much as I could before, right. you know, I knew I was going to be made to stop. <laughs> I did. So I did. True. I went completely off the deep end for about five years. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is the biggest obstacle to people getting any kind of help. Right, because we know how the script goes. You intervene and you say, You got a problem, you got a disease, you have to quit and go to rehab. And that's why people run away from interventions. Yeah. That's why they won't agree. You know, we say they're in denial, but, you know, or that's what the rehab system says. Well, you're in denial. But right. the thing is, they're protecting themselves from this black or white label. Right, uh, yeah. where the minute you agree I have a problem, that means you can never touch a substance ever again. You can't right. become a normal drinker. You've now agreed, and it's going to become part of your whole family system as they get pulled into family treatment, and they're taught that you have a disease and you'll lose control, and everybody has to uphold the rules in this identity that, hey, you, Michelle, you can never touch a single anything for the rest of your life you go to the dentist you can't take a pain pill afterwards right you go to a wedding you can't have a drink you know it, whatever the thing is and and you talk about young people you're jumping in and saying this they're gonna fight that well and it's it's not um it's gonna be you know you wonder why rehab fails so much for young people it's creating such a huge hurdle even if it was true to tell people you have to make this decision for the rest of your life is it, it, it's just so big 
that you well, say, screw it and keep doing what you're doing. And exactly. it's and and you know what's really what what like accelerates the hatred towards the rehab system and makes you reject it is not only do they tell you in when you're young like that because I went through it too just like Michelle did you're put in the system not only are you told that you have this diagnosis but that the answer to that diagnosis is a life of recovery where you'll always crave the very thing that's causing the supposed problem. Mm -hmm. So so the answer is a mild form of torture where you feel deprived of the very thing that you think makes you happy. And boy, let me tell you, that is not an appetizing set of options. So here you are being evaluated. You've now been labeled as a broken human being. Oh, and by the way, the answer is daily meetings where you have to remind yourself of the misery daily for the rest of your life, and that's the medicine, buddy. And I got to tell you, it's, it's, that's how people die because they become suicidal. I became suicidal in treatment. I did too. I was never suicidal before that, ever. But after treatment and during treatment is where I actually thought, I can't do this. It's so utterly depressing. Because I was at a difficult point in my life. I really was. I was drinking daily and I was having withdrawal and, and doing a lot of drugs. And I'm sitting there with these counselors and there was no answer. That, what they were saying was, listen, bud, the thing you love, you can't have. And your life isn't going to get much better. The best you got to hope for is a one day at a time struggle. Good luck. Yeah, you're always going to want it. You're always going to crave. You have to be aware of triggers. You have to be aware of feeling hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. I'm like... Which are daily, <laughs> daily feelings, right? Yeah. I'm starving right now. <laughs> oh, no, Steve. I don't know, are you? <laughs> no, maybe you might get a cheeseburger. massive hurdle right and that's scary and um you know it's just it's so untrue and that's why what what clayton uh who used to work at the retreat did with me was so brilliant you know and i talk about this in the book i don't know if i talked about it in as much detail as i should have but he said you know he said steve uh drugs are always going to be there there's going to be new drugs, stronger drugs. I mean, he was right. There's mm -hmm. definitely new drugs and stronger drugs. Um, and he said, so they're not going anywhere. And why, why don't you try just giving up for one year and see if you can be happier without them. And, you know, then you'll get your answer. And, and if you need them, go back. And if you, if you don't, if you feel happier, then great. You stay quit. And it, so it was not the rest of your life. That's what not what he posed to me. He posed right. to me an experiment of one year. Yeah. And, it, you know, it just lowered the hurdle. And it was like, yeah, I could do that. You know, I had done almost a year before on methadone and um, with, without, uh, without using, close to a year. Um, so, so I was like, yeah, I could do that. And then I was able to make the discoveries I needed to make in that time. So it, it, now... Um, I went a few years totally abstinent, and then I decided to drink like a normal person. That that was the thought in my mind. Maybe that's why I used that to title 
this podcast. You mm-hmm. know, I'm, I mean, I don't know what is normal. I don't know if there is a normal. But again, it's more of a, well, I know it when I see it, which is you're not causing too much trouble, right? Yeah. And you're just, it's, you, it's a thing that accents, enhances, improves your life, right? Right. Um, your experience. Story. That's right. And you feel yeah. totally in control. Well, I think Michelle just hit on it. What you just said, Michelle, is the key is there's a difference between buying into the out-of-control model where you feel like you don't have a choice, which is a very real feeling if you learn that, right? Like I did, like you did, did. Michelle, and Mm -hmm. you, Steve, too, in treatment. You learned it, too. I mean, I met you when you came in the retreat, and you were... You were bought and sold on the treatment model at that point. It, you know, it's it's what your experience was. Um, so we all came in to you know this whole experience thinking, I'm out of control. I can't figure out how to beat this thing, and that feeling is is a horrible place to be. Um, but then you learn, hopefully, like what we teach people, is that. Uh, You've always been in control. And boy, I got to tell you, when you teach people that, and when I see parents get it that their kids have always been in control, the light bulb goes on, their eyes light up because they suddenly realize they're responsible, which means they can change anything. And that sense of, that now the person has control again that, because control is a belief. And that is, oh, I, I've been the one in the driver's seat. I didn't know that. Nobody told me that because they were always trying to convince me in treatment that I was never in control. And uh, so that's, that's a big key part of, of getting over the problem is knowing, hey, this is me. This is me deciding to get high and then me deciding to maybe not get high. Right. Right. I, I want to just talk quickly about, um, there was a, a post on one of those sites, on one of those uh, Facebook groups uh, within the last couple of days of someone who, you know, decided they would try some moder- moderate drinking. Oh and, yeah, I saw that one. Yeah, it, very sad. And that, you know, and the person is like, you know, I've been drunk ever since. I'm totally out of control. I don't understand. Um, and this was somebody who was around around 12 step for many years and stayed abstinent for many years. And, um, and I, I, I want to let people know that I was abstinent for 19 years, almost 20 years before I decided that I was going to try it. And even when I decided, made that decision, it was, a it, I didn't take it lightly. Um, you know, intellectually, I knew that it was possible. I, I knew that alcohol did not have power over me. Um, I, I had had surgery and had opiates and didn't have a problem. So I, so I had a lot of evidence that showed me that I could drink like a normal person, but, but the programming was so deep that literally when I took that drink, I waited for something to happen to you. To me, like yeah. I, I, yeah. I want. I waited to feel the phenomenon of craving. I, I, I thought I'm gonna want to drink every day, and I, I drank at a wedding. You know, I had one glass of champagne at a wedding, which was delicious, and then I didn't drink again for about six months. Because and I you remember were waiting. this because I was waiting, <laughs> and I remember this vividly. I remember thinking and discussing it with my husband, like. Like, you know, it all seemed to go okay. And he's looking at me like I'm nuts. And he was in AA too um, for a long, longer than I was. And, uh, 
and and but he was just like of course nothing's gonna happen it doesn't have power but I just then I, I drank again about six months later nothing happened again it took me about a year to to really feel comfortable and knowing that nothing bad was going to happen that you, I was in total control had, you had to absorb the fact that everything you had learned was truly a myth yes you know and like I, how could they be so wrong I, I know I know I remember I, I too was absent for I don't know 20 years 22 years somewhere I forget what the exact number is and uh, I was at a hotel and I took out one of those little bottles of booze I think it was black velvet actually which I, I've always enjoyed and I, I drank it, right? <laughs> Sitting there on the bed, and I drank it, and I remember, and I remember thinking, okay, holy shit, this is so anticlimactic. That's what I thought. I thought that I, nothing it, happened. It means nothing to me, and because I had, so, I had waited so long, my life had changed so dramatically, and. And by that point, I had done enough research that I knew that the whole phenomenon of craving was total bunk. And, you know, I, I learned. But to actually do it and sit down and do yeah. it, was, it was it was so anticlimactic. I thought, wow. And I don't think I drank for probably a few months after that until it was at my house. And I, I drank with my family, which was a lot of fun. Um, and I figured out that yeah, I'm in my 40s, man. I'm not 18. Yeah, and I, yeah. But but to address the people that whose experience is the self-fulfilling prophecy, which is um they don't they haven't been deprogrammed. They they yeah, still have this belief issue. system. Um I never recommend that that they they try some moderate drinking. I never recommend it because um, if you believe you're going to be out of control, well, then you will. That's that's it. If you are not deprogrammed from that matrix, you are doomed to have the phenomenon of craving because that's your belief system. That's a great yeah. point. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I really do feel for those people. I the truth of the matter is, I became, if you, for lack of a better term, somebody with an alcohol problem, an alcoholic, so to speak because I was told I would become one. Yeah. Um, and I mean, so much so that I was 22 years old and had withdrawal from alcohol. I drank every day. I went completely off the deep end. Me I too. used drugs very heavily for a period of about three years, but I quit them, believe it or not. I quit them completely six months before I quit drinking, um, you know, which you're not supposed to be able to do. Right. Um, but I seemed to manage to do it. So, so the good news was is through my deprogramming and what we do at the freedom model is you really start to look back over your substance use experience and recognize the myths for what they are. Yeah, you so recognize true. that you were in control all along, um, but that your belief that you were out of control really did fuel the problem. Yeah. And sometimes just that belief keeps you in the problem like these people, yeah. you know, that you're talking about on the Facebook groups who, it, it it hurts my heart to to read those accounts because I I remember when I was in that I do too and I was drinking every day and I would try to moderate and, yes and I would stop for in my case I would stop for 12 13 hours mm -hmm. and I think oh my god I I have to drink and I would then start drinking again and I would hate myself and 
Now I'd start shaking again and I'd have to get with, get rid of withdrawal. That whole cycle and that, and all the AA people ringing in my head. And it was like this sad song that I'm doomed for jails, institutions, or death, or AA. And frankly, I kept drinking because AA was so bleak, Yeah, you know, so and I depressing. read the, these accounts of people, but, but you make a good point. And, and it's something that we addressed on those posts uh, on Facebook and that is, if you want to get over this problem totally, whether that's to moderate successfully or, or to abstain, you have to get rid of the mythology. You have to read the freedom model because we go through all of it. We lived it. We lived extricating ourselves from that matrix, all that brainwashing. I was born into it. You were born into it. Yeah. And Steve, you learned it in treatment. All of it's bad. All of it's because it's not true. It's, it's mythology. So um, you have to unlearn all of that first, and then it becomes very easy to make decisions for yourself. It does. Yeah. And you know what is equally important is just the focus on happiness that, yeah. that we give in our program, right? Which is just figure out what's really going to make you happiest. And yeah. That might be abstinence. It might be some form of moderation. And it might change over time as well. Sure, sure. like and it did for us. Like it did yeah, for us. Like it did for us, right? And we didn't have a program that taught us about moderation, right? We yeah, we didn't. figured it out over time. And so did, you know, something I learned uh a few years after I started drinking, I spoke to a lot of the folks that went through the retreats around the same time as me. And they said things like, well, yeah, you know, I, I put all the drugs down for a couple years and then I started, uh, and I was like, I could drink, you know? And, right. And, and there's so many people like that. And I know some who um, actually smoke a lot of pot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> were hair, you know, one who was, you know, had a, massive heroin problem and was in institutions and everything and is just doing so great in his life and he smokes a lot of pot so what yeah he's right doing right. so good in his life and it's that i think you know it's such an improvement that he yeah. has that he, that he likes the pot and that's a pretty normal thing where he is in the in the city that he lives in which i won't say i don't want to like I don't want right, right. Yeah. to come down on anybody, but yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's in California. And, um, you know, so it's, and it's, and then what I really think it was is all of us back then, we were just focused on, we're making a change for our own happiness. That's yes. right. That's you right. Know, we we're open to the idea that there were, there could be more happiness in letting go of this heavy drug use habit and we all found out that there was you know yeah 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 and, you know so um so i think that that's it and and but i i don't know if people who haven't been in treatment understand that once you've had a drug problem they tell you you can't drink right you know um i don't know if everybody knows that but but that's a big thing so they they would tell me because I had a heroin and cocaine problem that if I ever drank, I would be back shooting up heroin and cocaine. Right. That it leads and, you back. Yeah. And that hasn't happened. You know, 
Um, it happened while I was in treatment programs, but not after I did the retreat program. <clears throat> so, um, you know, that's you 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 send your loved one away, and you think they're going to deal with the drug problem, and they get this across the board. You could never drink thing, and it it's just untrue. I know so many people who had very bad drug problems that are now normal drinkers or they use some pot and right. and that's an improvement that is more socially acceptable right things yeah. go smoother in life if if somebody switches to something like that um and uh and yes you know and anybody who's had a drug or alcohol problem can become a you know quote unquote normal drinker in my opinion, yeah, from from the research we've done, I want to yeah. just I want to qualify something quickly, and that's to say that we're not putting down abstinence. Um, but what I what I do have a problem with is fear based abstinence. Right. Um, if if people choose abstinence because uh, they they believe their lives are better abstinent, I I believed my life was better abstinent for a long long time. And, um, and it was, I had a, I had a good life. Um, but it got to the point where I was like, you know, I, I, I would like to drink again. I would like to, now part of that was for my own research. Cause I wanted to, I needed to know that it was true and I needed to not be fearful of it. And I needed my children not to grow up fearful of alcohol. Like it had some kind of power, like I grew up. Um, so, but, but if you, if you, choose abstinence i think that's wonderful i think there's a there's great benefits to being abstinent um but you're not totally free if your abstinence is fear-based um if you believe that drugs and alcohol have the power to enslave you um that's that's kind of a that's kind of a dangerous way to think yeah well and you know what you know how they say these you know stupid things like well you stopped growing emotionally when you started using oh yeah you stunted your emotional yeah. oh, yeah. your they still, maturation they still push that one. oh yeah well, you started using drugs at 14 now you're 34 well it's like you're emotionally like a 14 year old still right, <laughs> say right. something like that mm-hmm. and i you know i would say in some way though i'm going to take that theory i'm going to say if if you if you quit entirely on fear yes you're gonna kind of stay in the same place of a romance with drugs or alcohol it's a great point right yeah yeah yes and then you know you go back eventually and because you know what i see from the people who you know have a problem going you know, trying to moderate after 10 years of abstinence or something like that, and they go full bore again. When you talk to them, they're always the like self-medicating type. They really, they've just been dying to drink for stress for like 10 years. Yeah. And they've been denying themselves that, you know, so they've had this romance. They've been looking at it as this magical elixir for themselves. And then, you know, it's no wonder that once they go back to it, they, they go overboard, you know, and because it's, it's like you stunt your your view of drugs or alcohol at the place where you stopped when it's under fear. But when you do just actually consider 
hey, you know what? Those, you know, I had fun with the drugs, I had fun with the drinking, but maybe I can enjoy myself more changing this, quitting for a while, whatever. That's a far different thing. You yes. have like changed your view of the value of the drugs in the process of making that choice for greater happiness. So, well, you know, as much as it's important that we're telling people I have control, um, it is really important to get away from the fear orientation to change and towards this happiness orientation. I think that you, you bring up another thing. Uh, we're running out of time, but, um, you know, people, uh, uh, one of the things we do at the, at the retreats is we go over what are the perceived benefits of drinking. We ask the person that. We say, do you think it relieves stress? Do you think it uh, helps with trauma? Do you think, and if they answer yes to all of the above, to all those learned connections, right? If they, if they answer yes, then that's what we need to work on because if they believe it actually pharmacologically takes care of stress or it actually does these things, when it, it logically and scientifically can't, by the way, um, mm -hmm. but, but if they believe it does, well, then it has real significant value in their life and it's going to be very difficult to let go. I think that's the point you're making. I'm just making a different... It um, is, yeah. Um, it's going um, to be put up on a pedestal. Yes, right? yes, and yes. One of the lines I, that, that we put in there was, was like, look, if you believed that alcohol really does this list of things that everybody says it does, right? It'll it'll help you when you you know your girlfriend leaves you, right? Yeah. It'll make you more outgoing. It'll make you relax and sink into your couch. It'll you know, it it'll it's like kind of this all purpose drug. If you really believe that, you would be crazy not to just drink all the time. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, like Yes. What you and I know that this is going to sound wild, but like the behavior, um, you, you know, of somebody who drinks under those beliefs is completely rational based on what they believe. And yeah, it's true. Fed. And when yes. you go to rehab and they say you're self-medicating, you're doing this for your depression. I'm like, oh, and that kind of like reinforces the idea that it helps with depression. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. And then, and making you more depressed and and what's and what's so important about that is if you really believe that it's going to be almost impossible to ever moderate from drinking because yeah. you believe it has such significant value to your mental health and state of being so so one and of the I, things that we I do think that's one of the most important things we do is we give people perspective and it's especially important for young people I not get carried away and romanced with the substances. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think it's the mo it's fundamentally one of the most important things we do, and it's very difficult for some people to not romanticize. And we'll say things like, "Does the drug actually relieve stress?" Does it? And they'll say, "Yeah, yeah, it does, man. I it does." And then they'll go and you listen, and they'll go off on all the benefits. And then I'll ask them when they're all done, I'll look at them and I'll go, then how are you ever going to stop? And they right. kind of look at me and they go, well, you're supposed to tell me how to stop. 
I said, well, we need to explore whether the drugs actually are doing that for you. And then we have something to work from. But, but that process that Steve is describing, that we're all describing here, is basically finding the truth about what, what substances actually do. And when you find out what they actually do, which we spend a lot of time doing, you find it's very, it's very incredibly limited. Yep. It's, and everything else that's so romantic is us. It's our belief. And when people really get that, um, they're able to let it go because they're like, wow, I've been making up this whole thing. This whole thing is all in my head. It's me. It's not even the drinking. It's me. The drinking and the drugging is just a cue for me to feel less stress. I use it as a cue to feel more sexual or more outgoing or whatever it might be. But the drug can't do that because it's a substance that just speeds up metabolism or slows it down. So well, this is, there's this, a, yeah. There's a question in the workbook that just recently in the past couple weeks, I've had a few people telling me that it's really effective at taking away their anger. They, when, they're, when they're angry, they drink and it takes it away. <laughs> and then a couple, then a little while later, there's a question that says, have you ever blamed, um, have you ever blamed any of your behavior on, on alcohol? And then they'll give an example like, yeah, I, I just totally got in a fight and went off on somebody and, <laughs> and, uh, and I had been drinking, you know, and so I alcohol. It's like, okay, well, wait a minute. How could you get angry and, and start that fight while you were intoxicated? If it really takes away your anger, anger. <laughs> and some, you know, and, and then they're like, oh crap, you know, because now, now they, they've, they've brought up their own contradictory <laughs> example. You know? Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Exactly. Kind of, it's kind of fun to see that happen. Yeah. Um, well, their, their eyes light up and they start to see that pharmacologically it can't change the content of your thoughts and emotions. Yeah. Can't do it. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up. And this has been wonderful. I, I'm glad that we could do this for everyone. Um, we will keep talking about this stuff. Please like and share our podcasts. And if you have questions for us, you can reach us. We have a Facebook page called The Freedom Model. Um, and we, are, we have SoberForever.net is our retreat website. Uh, thefreedommodel.org at lists all of our services and you can order the book on that site and um, and also we have private instruction where uh, Steve, if you'd you like to learn the, if you'd like to learn the freedom model from the comfort of home uh, and have one-on-one -on -one classes with Steve um, you know private instruction is an option for you it's very affordable um, and that's become a very very popular option for people that want to be deprogrammed or go through that process of figuring out how to move on with their life and and speed up the process of natural natural remission right you don't have to wait till you're 60 you can you can do it at 25 or 30 or 40. so um yeah the freedommodel.org has those options and also our phone number 888-424-2626 and uh yeah, we're here to help you. Yes. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, guys. All right. All right. Take care. We'll talk to everybody next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Solution Podcast brought to you by the Freedom Model. You can send your questions, comments, or topics you'd like us to talk about to podcast at thefreedommodel.org. 
If you enjoyed this show, please share it with your friends. If you are struggling or you know someone who is, the Freedom Model can help. Call 888-424-2626 or go to thefreedommodel.org to see which option may be right for you. If you're specifically seeking a residential retreat, you can check out SoberForever.net. Once again, that's SoberForever.net.